Well, good morning. Uh, it's been a wild couple of weeks, hasn't it? Um, I missed you all last week, uh, both our regular worship service as well as the discovery meeting that we were planning to have that, um, as it says in the, the bulletin there, uh, we're going to reschedule it for March 3rd, two weeks from today. So uh, be looking forward to that. I'm still excited about that conversation together. So I hope amidst all the, the wildness of the last couple of weeks that you have all fared the snowpocalypse or, or snowmageddon or whatever the term might be well, uh, that you have been able to keep warm and safe and also keep your sanity. Uh, there, there can be a bit of a craze that begins to develop when everything is snowed in and iced over. You know, after you're stuck inside for a week or two, we have a thing called cabin fever, where you're just sort of, you know, just itching to get out and, and want to go return to normal life a little bit. But, but I actually think some of this craziness started before the snow came. I don't know if any of you witnessed this. I got to, when I went out to run some errands a day or two before the snow was predicted to arrive, and the grocery store was just madness. People were everywhere. The uh, shelves were empty. Things were, were crazy. Uh, I heard someone there say, I have never seen a day so busy in my life, uh, someone who was working there. Uh, and Caitlin and I actually have a friend who works at Trader Joe's, and he said that it was a regional record. Never before on a Thursday have they sold so much uh, in all of their history. So that, that's a, a big deal. There's a lot going on. Um, and, and Caitlin actually went to Trader Joe's, and it was true. Most things were missing. So anyways, and even this past week, Terry mentioned to me that Walmart was out of stuff. So I mean, when Walmart is out, it's, it's serious. So, so the craziness ensued. Even before the snow came, people were getting crazy. And I think this works the other way around, too. You know, people get crazy when they're afraid that their food's going to be missing. Um, but also, people can be really happy whenever their food is with them. Um, and, and I don't know if you resonate with that. I definitely resonate with that. Caitlin has said that in our marriage, mealtime is the time when I am by far the most affectionate and most vocal. I didn't realize this, but she reflected that back to me. So either she has sort of discovered one of my love languages, or I am no better than a household pet who comes whenever the, the food is, is being poured out uh, one way or the other. Uh, but, but we have so many memories around food, right? It, it is a place where people gather, Food's a big deal. Have you ever had one of those parties where, you know, you set your living room up nice for people to hang out, but everyone just ends up in the kitchen anyway, right? That's just where people gather. They gather where the food is. Um, one of my favorite memories growing up was Sunday mornings. Uh, my dad would always make waffles, and so we would get up early and, and go down to the kitchen together. And my little brother and I loved getting to sit there and, and help dad make waffles. And it was a lot of fun. We would concoct all kinds of different ingredients. My younger brother always wanted to put chocolate chips in his waffles. I, I loved experimenting with things like bananas and pecans and cinnamon and all that sort of thing. But we just loved getting to do this, getting to sit around and, and work with food and, and make that with my dad. So, so food, craziness, crowds, this is the stuff we've been swimming in the past couple of weeks, and this is exactly where our passage goes today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be 
And we're going to begin in verse 1. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you all we're continuing this series uh, of looking at the different signs throughout the Gospel of John. And throughout the series, we have pointed out that just like the other Gospels, John tells stories of Jesus doing miraculous and wonderful things, but unlike the other Gospels, he consistently calls them signs. That, that he consistently calls them signs, and that is significant because signs are not an end in themselves. Signs are meant to point us somewhere. We follow signs, and so the signs that Jesus does are meant to point us to who he is, what he's like, and to who we are in him. So today in John chapter 6, we see a sign that, like the Snowpocalypse grocery stores, has crowds and craziness, and at the very center of it is food. So let's read this together. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. And now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not, be enough, would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get even a little. And one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? But Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told the disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves, Left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the beauty of snow that we've experienced these last couple of weeks. Thank you for this story. God, I pray that as we dwell in these words, as we reflect on them, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today the plan is to just walk back through that passage again together and stop along the way to see what we can. So if you look back to the beginning of this story, you see that 
word about Jesus is continuing to spread around. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about this little group of Galileans who were beginning to follow Jesus because they saw his signs. But now we see here in verse 2 that a large crowd is following him because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. So Jesus went up to a mountain to sit with his disciples and teach them. He tried to go to a little bit more of a private place so he could be with his disciples, but the crowd persists, right? In verse 5, it says that Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him. And so he began to change his teaching strategy with the disciples, right? Instead of having a small group Bible study on the mountaintop, he decides it's time to get practical, right? To, To move out among the crowds. And I love this. I love that this is what Jesus does, because you see, teaching and instruction are really important. That Bible class time that we have before service is is a really important time. It's incredibly formative for, for those who are part of that. This time here, together on Sunday mornings, that we worship together, that we hear from God's Word, that we gather at the table, this is vital to our spiritual life. But ultimately, life with God goes beyond here and goes beyond these things. God longs for us to gather with him here. But he also delights in sending us out from here into our daily lives. He delights in sending us out to the streets, back to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces. And we see Jesus do this throughout many of the Gospels. We see this pattern where Jesus gathers up his disciples, brings them together, and then he sends them out to to go out, to, to be with the people, to do the work of ministry, and then he gathers them back up again. And that's the pattern that we follow each week as we gather and then go from here. And that's the pattern that we begin to glimpse a little bit of in this passage. Look at how he does this. In the middle of verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all of these people to eat? And it says he said this to test Philip, because Jesus knew what he was going to do. Right? Now, this is kind of sneaky of Jesus, right? But, But even with the change of plans that the the looming crowd might have brought, Jesus is still in teaching mode. He brought his disciples up to the mountain to teach them. That's why he brought them there, and that's still what he's doing, but he's doing it differently. So he asks Philip this question not only because he cares about the crowd that's approaching them, but also because he wants to teach his disciples. He wants to show them something. But Philip doesn't know that, right? So Philip just responds kind of despairingly. What? You know, six months' wages wouldn't be enough to buy bread for these people, right? Not even for them to get a little bit. He looks to Jesus and says, look, even if we could find enough bread for everyone, we could never possibly afford it. Now, As I was thinking about this, I'm not sure if this is relevant, but I did a little bit of research, and I found out that 
It would cost over $200,000 to get one hot dog for every person at a Seahawks game. All right? So if everyone just had one hot dog, that's, you don't get a drink, you don't get any side items, you just get one hot dog, $200,000 for every person there. Now, this is not quite that big of a crowd. So, so this crowd is maybe closer to the size of the Tacoma Dome. Okay, but even that's about $60,000 for one hot dog per person, right? And so Philip is just exasperated, right? He just says, this is not possible. We could never afford something like this. But Jesus already knew what he was going to do. So he only asked Philip to kind of test him. Now, I wonder... What are the impossible things that Jesus might be calling us into? Right? What are the impossible things he's asking for us to do as a church? Right? Look, crossing the streets. What are the impossible streets that God might be calling us to cross? Partnering for peace. What kind of peace seems unreachable? Maybe Jesus is calling us there. You know, discovering the kingdom. What kind of life with God seems completely impossible to attain? I think these are some of the things that Jesus is offering and is calling us into. Jesus calls us toward radical things, toward wild dreams. And yet we, like Philip, often feel like they're just totally impossible. And all we can see is what we don't have. But then in comes Andrew, right? Says that Simon Peter's brother in verse 8. Andrew comes in, and he, he's not just thinking about what we don't have. He says, well, we do have, right? There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, I sort of wonder if Andrew is sincerely trying to help, or if he's just being a little sarcastic. You know, I mean, imagine again, you're at the football stadium, and Jesus says, where can we get food for everyone here? And Philip says, there's no way we could afford this. And then Andrew comes along and says, well, you know, little Johnny here brought a Lunchable, right? Like, (laughs) maybe we could pass this out, you know? It's just not even viable as a solution. And, so, and he even says that. He says, what are these among so many people? But that's all that Jesus needs. That's actually all that Jesus needs. Even though Johnny's Lunchable might seem like a joke, Jesus responds to it. Philip is exasperated about the cost to feed everyone, And maybe Andrew's a little sarcastic about the the boy's lunch, but Jesus doesn't rebuke Philip, and he doesn't laugh at Andrew. In verse 10, Jesus says, all right, make the people sit down. And he gets to work. So what is Jesus trying to do here? Well, sometimes, as we've said, Jesus calls us into things that seems absolutely impossible. And all we can see is the stark difference between what we need and what we have. Philip says that what they need is a half year's wages. And Andrew says, well, all that we have is kind of, you know, a little bag of goldfish or something like that. 
One of the things I was reading this week, N.T. Wright says about this passage, so often we ourselves have no idea what to do. But the starting point is always to bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. You can never tell what he's going to do with it. Though part of Christian faith is the expectation that he will do something, and something that we had never thought of, something new, and something creative. And that's the point of this sign. It points us past what we need and even past what we have toward who Jesus is and what he can do in us and through us with what we do have. With Jesus, nothing is impossible. And the truth is, Jesus could have done this thing on his own, right? Like he could have conjured up baskets full of bread and passed them out to everyone, but he didn't. Why? Why did he begin by asking Philip, right? Why did he continue by, by using the bread from this, this unnamed little boy? Well, remember the story I mentioned a little while ago, how I grew up making waffles, right, with my dad on Sunday mornings. If, if you really think about that, it would have probably been way easier and way less messy for my dad to just make the waffles on his own, right? Inviting two young boys into the prospects of flour, water, and eggs in a giant bowl is a recipe for, yes, waffles, but also potential disaster, right? I mean, it is going to get messy. It's going to get wild. But, but that's not the point, right? The point wasn't to make waffles as efficiently as possible. The point was that my dad wanted to make waffles with his sons. And that's the way God is with us. God does not just want to fix the world. God is redeeming the world through us. He uses us broken people to that end. God isn't just preparing a great banquet for the day when Jesus returns. He is actually inviting us into the kitchen with him to prepare for that banquet alongside him. That's why the church exists, right? That's who we are. We are a people preparing the world for redemption. We're a people in the kitchen with God, so to speak. And that's why I think Jesus involves Philip and Andrew, and this little boy. Jesus desires for us to join him in the work of ministry. Jesus is not only powerful, he is also personal. And we see this even more clearly as we keep reading. Look at verse 11. It says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus not only miraculously multiplies the food, but he also mercifully distributes it. The way that John tells the story is that 
It's Jesus who makes his way through the crowd and actually distributes the bread and the fish to each person. And he gives each one of them as much as they wanted until they were satisfied. So we can see that Jesus is both powerful enough to multiply the bread and the fish, but personal enough to distribute it to all who had need. And I think that we see here also that there is truly spiritual value in distributing food to those who are in need. I think a lot of people might say, oh, we shouldn't give handouts, or we should only give to people who deserve it, or, you know, maybe people who have already become Christ followers, and we'll, we'll help them out and that sort of thing, only people who have faith. But that's not what Jesus does here. A lot of these people, by the end of the chapter, are going to reject Jesus and walk away from him. But nonetheless, Jesus feeds them. So there is real spiritual significance to things like the bag program that we do each week. There's real spiritual significance to serving the women and men of Reach Out who are hungry and don't have places to live. There is real spiritual significance to hosting a community lunch on Wednesdays. Jesus fed people with no expectation. And so do we, because we're in the kitchen with God, right? So when all of this begins to wrap up, we look at verse 12. It says, when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. Now, I think there's at least two things that we see from, from this part of the story. The first is abundance, that God has the ability to provide so much. Look, this is so much different than Philip's six months' wages would only give them all a little. Here, Jesus used a few barley loaves and some fish to give them all as much as each one wanted until they were satisfied. So Jesus is filled with abundance, but it also shows something else, I think. It shows his faithfulness. Because these 12 baskets, I think, symbolize that God is going to gather up his people together in the end. Let me tell you what I mean by that. How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. Over and over and over again, throughout the prophets, there's a promise to the people in exile that God one day is going to gather them up together and he's going to bring them back home. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. And so here, Jesus says, gather up the rest. Not one is going to be lost. And there are 12 baskets left. Jesus says this also. Look, look down, if you do have a Bible, in verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you, 
that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so Jesus says, I am not going to lose one that my father has given me. I am going to gather my people together and bring about redemption. This shows that Jesus is not only abundant, but he is faithful to bring about redemption to his people. But sometimes we don't trust that Jesus is going to be faithful, or at least that he's going to be faithful the way that we want him to. And that's the twist ending that we read. That's the craziness, right, that ensues. In verse 15, where it says that they were going to take Jesus by force to make him king. You see, they also believed what the prophet said, that God was going to redeem his people and bring them all back together again. But they wanted to do it on their time, not on God's. They wanted to do it their way. And Jesus is not one to assume power. The way of Jesus is not power and force, but rather his death. It's the way of the cross. And that's where Jesus ultimately goes. So when they come to him to make him king by force, he withdraws to the mountain by himself. So this is the sign. It's a sign of Jesus' faithfulness. It's a sign of his abundance. And it is a sign that he is inviting us alongside him to do impossible things. And so I want to leave you just with those things to consider. What are the impossible things that Jesus is calling you to? Or the impossible things that he's calling us to as a community? And don't worry about what you might need but rather faithfully live with what you have. Your loaves and fish are enough. Jesus is going to take care of the rest. So that's the first question. What is the impossible thing that he's calling you to? And the second one I want to leave you with is just do we trust that God will be faithful? What are the ways that we might resist that and try to take him and make him king by force in our own life. By our own power, by our own will. That's not really making him king, is it? Do we trust him to be faithful in all things? I pray that it would. May it be so. Amen.